Hello and welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Brianne Fallon and today with me I have Dave McConaughey. We are rapidly approaching the end of our first season of content together, Brie, and I'm really thankful that today's episode is one that you recorded with Dr. Avril Alba about Holocaust museums as sacred secular space. So we're just going to go right into it today. Take it away. Thanks, team. It's Bree here, and I am joined by Dr. Avril Alba. Avril is the senior lecturer in Holocaust Studies and Jewish Civilization, and she's also chair of the Department of Hebrew, Biblical, and Jewish Studies at the University of Sydney. She teaches and researches in the broad areas of Holocaust and modern Jewish history, with a focus on Jewish and Holocaust museums. Her monograph, The Holocaust Memorial Museum, Secular Sacred Space, was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2015. From 2002 to 2011, Avril was the Education Director at the Sydney Jewish Museum, where she also served as the Project Director and Curator for the permanent exhibition Culture and Continuity, which opened in 2009. She was also Project Director and Consulting Curator for the permanent exhibition The Holocaust, which opened in 2017, and she was Consulting Curator together with a team of academics on the permanent exhibition The Holocaust and Human Rights, which opened in 2018. She's the author of numerous book chapters and journal articles and most recently co-edited Holocaust Memory and Racism in the Post-War World with Shirley Gilbert, which was published by Wayne State University Press in 2019. In 2018, she was awarded an ARC Discovery Grant to convince a commence a major new research project, The Memory of the Holocaust in Australia. Welcome, Avril. Thank you, Bree. It's great to be here. Well, thank you for joining us in isolation from across the interwebs, even though we're not actually that far away from each other, but it is what it is at the moment. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you today about the concept of the museum as a sacred space. Um, That concept sort of came to light in the last decade or so. Can you give us some sense of how that area of study came to be and what its key concepts are? Yes, absolutely. It's um, it's a pretty exciting area, I have to say. And as you say, it's probably a decade or a little over a decade um, old now. And there have been some really seminal works, works by people like Carolyn Dean um, and Crispin Payne and, um, and, and many others. And in fact, in 2017, um, there was This is for people who are interested in, you know, doing more. There was a very um, comprehensive reader done, Religion in Museums, uh, by Gretchen Bugain, I think is how you say it, Crispin Payne and uh, Esperant Plate. So there's there's a sort of almost like now a bit of an explosion in the area. And, um, And it is a fascinating area. And in many ways I think it comes from a central question, which is, to what extent do museum spaces, and, and I'm going to be broad in my definition here, so museum and memorial spaces, imitate and perhaps evoke the sacred? Now, this is, of course, a, a very big question because it, in a sense it begs the other question of what is the sacred right, and how do we define that um, and how do we conceptualise that within spaces that traditionally really were not 
about the sacred. And if you think about the development of the museum form itself, it's very much a sort of enlightenment project, right? The, the modern museum sort of grows out of the enlightenment. I don't want to overstate that, however. I don't want to overstate that because I actually, along with many others, have become, uh, have started to question that kind of narrative when we look at the development of museums more carefully. Um, but I would say it's still fair to say that, that at its base, um, one would not automatically assume that, say, a social history museum or a science museum or places like that could could also be places in which we experience and understand the sacred. Um, but as you say, with the growth of scholarship in this area and the growth of museums and memorials in general, we we definitely, you know, we are more and more, I think, um, thinking about those concepts and thinking about those places as places of the sacred. So, for example, I'm not going to, you know, quote too much, but I do think this is a wonderful quotation from Jay Winter about um, First World War memorials where he says, they are the cathedrals of the 21st century, pointing to sacred themes of sacrifice, death, mourning, evil, brotherhood, dignity, transcendence. Right? And those those concepts, those ideas, I think, do get embodied in these spaces. So I think I think in some ways the the field is defined by by questions like um, how do these places, as I said, imitate and evoke the sacred, but equally how do they desacralize? objects that we considered sacred in other settings, right? There is the possibility of that as well. And then I think finally the most interesting question certainly to me is how do they transform our understanding of the sacred as well? And and this happens obviously in a variety of ways. It's through looking at how religious objects and rituals become repurposed in, um, in the museum setting the architecture of museum spaces and their contribution to the, the sense of sacrality. Um, you know, it's, I think it's no exaggeration to say that for every architect today, the greatest, uh, you know, the greatest job to get is, is a museum or memorial, um, uh, you know, commission because the, the imagination that you can put into it and the ideas and the, um, what you can do with a building like that is probably different to any, you know, any other kind of building. And I think we can all think of sort of great museums and memorials and um, monuments that have been made in the last 20, 25 years. Um, and it's such an incredible opportunity for architects in that way. Um, and then I guess I would say too, on, on a sort of reception end in terms of these institutions, um, what I think is really interesting as well is how do they provide a space for what you might call ritualised behaviour? Right? What do they offer the visitor in terms of that kind of experience? Um, you know, again, an, an obvious or a, a, a common experience is the kind of awe that one might feel in a cathedral setting. Um, how is that perhaps mimicked in a in a memorial or museum setting? And you know, people have, have done work on that, particularly with regard to art museums. But I think again, war memorials, Holocaust memorial museums, um, etc. They they also do give that kind of feeling and, and it purposefully, right, want to evoke or remembrance, mourning, etc. In, in the visitors that come. And for the visitors that come, that is a big part of the reason why they want to visit, right, is to go through those rituals of remembrance in those spaces. 
And then I think finally, and I think this is probably one of the most interesting developments in the field, is the relationship between um, these spaces and uh, Indigenous cultures and how Indigenous cultures are both um, communicating their their sacred um, stories and places in these in these spaces. I, you know, the, the very famous seven, um, seven Sisters, I think it was called, uh, exhibition down in Canberra um, in the last couple of years was was extraordinary. And but also in many ways, these places I think for uh, Indigenous um, sacred ritual are very complex and very moving when one thinks about the terrible history of um, of a lot of museums in terms of the robbing, basically, the, the looting of Indigenous cultures and the looting of Indigenous bodies um, that was undertaken. And we know that a lot of the debates around repatriation today are actually about repatriation of of bones you know of bodies and and what is then the role of a of a memorial institution in that kind of sacred work and you know we don't have to go very far in Australia to have an example of that because of course we have groups um, within our Indigenous communities here who are advocating for something called a national resting place that that may you know in some at some point in the future be built perhaps in Canberra perhaps you know it's unsettled at this point where that might be, but a place that purpose is purpose built to receive back um, these these peoples their their bones and to have a place to to respectfully keep them um, until they can be returned to their country. Um, so you know there there are so many ways in which our institutions, I think, in terms of museums and memorials, both uh, evoke but also create, really create sacred places for us. There's something that you've raised there, which actually brings a question to my mind, which is deviating from our plan. But I would like to ask you this question and throw it at you if that's okay. Um, This idea of creation of of the sacred space or the creation of, of the museum or the memorial. Uh, We were chatting the other day and you mentioned a new book coming out about how the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe commission process sort of occurred. And you mentioned a very interesting, um, I think it was a, a proposal for that memorial where an architect suggested that the memorial should just be to blow up the Brandenburg Gate. Yes. And I just um, was also thinking about you know, there's the the new Holocaust Memorial slash Museum in London that is being planned. And, you know, that's been, you know, littered with controversy about the experience of the person in entering that space, whether it was too experiential in that sort of memorial moment. And this sort of does lead me on to one of our questions, which is, is there something different about Holocaust memorials and museums? Is there something different about the way they approach the sacred or the way they are sacred? Right. Yes. I mean, I I do think so, yes, because of particular factors. Right? There, there are, you know, many. But um, the first is I would say that even though most Holocaust 
memorials or memorial museums are not solely Jewish ventures. They are generally, you know, either private-public partnerships or a lot of the time they are publicly driven um, and government-driven, as you say, particularly with the one in, in Britain. But they are by virtue of obviously of the history they're dealing with, they are usually infused with Jewish memorial ritual, tropes, symbols, um, ideas, etc., etc. So by their very nature, and they function, of course, to allow for commemorative days that are both Jewish and non-Jewish in origin, right? So if you take our experience in, in Australia, we have Yom HaShoah, which is a part of the Jewish calendar, not the liturgical calendar, by the way, but the, 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 calendar, the, the calendar in a sense sanctioned by the State of Israel. And then you also have January 27th, which is the UN Holocaust Remembrance Day. And we commemorate both in Sydney at the Sydney Jewish Museum. Now, how they then become, how these commemorations proceed is then a fusion of traditional Jewish modes of remembrance, but also then obviously modes that can be translated or communicated to a broader audience. So they're always going to, in a sense, have that tension between, um, I would say, Jewish memorialization and broader memorialization. But within Jewish modes of memorialization themselves, that's where to me the real, I guess, and this is what the, the passion behind my book, um, that's where to me the real interest of the kind of sacred space we see with the Holocaust Memorial um, Museum occurs. Because in the in Jewish theology and in the Jewish world, there is no there's absolutely no agreement, but in some ways there's almost no no other forum, I think, where one can sort of actively um, play out what it means to commemorate the Holocaust in the way that one can in a Holocaust Memorial Museum. And why do I say that? Because synagogues and cemeteries have still have very set rituals that existed well before the Holocaust and, of course, will exist well after. But the Holocaust in so many ways was, a, you know, it was a radical break for, for Jewish theology. And there is a whole realm of writing that we, you know, that we refer to as post-Holocaust theology, but it hasn't yet entered the if you like, the sort of everyday liturgical life of the Jew. It has not done that. And what I contend is that that actually happens more in a space like a Holocaust Memorial Museum. Now, I'm not saying that the that that Jews and, and even non-Jews that come here are knowing come to those spaces are knowingly doing that. But they are in actuality doing that. And I guess I'll give you an example. You know, one of the reasons I became really interested in this area, besides the fact that I have scholarly training in <laughs> studies of religion and history, um, was that when I came to work at the Jewish Museum, it really struck me how for the survivors to come into the museum to go to spaces like the Children's Memorial or the Sanctum of Remembrance was was meaningful in the way that it might be for them to go and visit the grave of a, of a relative. And, of course, it makes sense because for the majority of those who lost people in the Holocaust, there are no graves, right? There are no places to go. But you need a place to go. There has to be somewhere where you can go and you can do that mourning. 
And what I noticed more and more for the survivors was that that was the place they wanted to go to. And so I ended up actually, you know, for my for my um, doctoral project, doing a, quite a lot of interviews with survivors on these topics. And they would say things to me like, for instance, no, it's not a traditional space, but it's a better space. And then I'd try and sort of push them on that. And they'd say, well, here I feel close to those I lost. You know, here I can think about them in a different way. Um, here I can commemorate. And that's interesting. Even the ones that had affiliations to synagogues or to cemeteries, this place had more significance for them in terms of that kind of commemorative ritualized act. And so I think in many ways they, they are places, and particularly for people perhaps who are not religious, you know, who are not observant, but in some way need to connect and mourn um, and and feel that they have in some ways processed that history, whether they are connected to it personally or not, that is what these places actually allow for. Um, and so, yes, I do feel like they, they perform that function. Now, that's not to say, of course, that that wouldn't a similar function would not be performed for those who wish to mourn those they lost in other wars, in other places. But I think particularly within the Jewish tradition, because of the tensions between a Jewish traditional theological outlook, right, where in terms of, and, and here I guess I'm really touching on concepts of theodicy um, and, you know, the um, a defense of God in light of, in light of evil, basically, um, the Jewish world, I would say, I would contend, <laughs> has not been able to come to some kind of systematic, ritualized understanding of what the Holocaust means within traditional Jewish paradigms. And, um, and yet, of course, people have human need um, to come to terms with an event of, of the kind of enormity of the Holocaust. So, uh, I guess that's a long way of saying <laughs> that, yes, I do, I do think there is something different. And, um, you know, depending on what you want to ask next, I could also extend that to even, you know, uh, instances where I think there is actual purposeful theological or theodic content in Holocaust Memorial Museums beyond just the personalised ritual that they enable, um, that they actually, it's inbuilt um, into into those structures. Well, my next question was going to be along those lines anyway, because from what's sort of coming to me from what you're saying is you, you use the word tension, but for me there's sort of this sense of the Holocaust Memorial Museum as a liminal space. It sort of walks the boundary between a secular space and a sacred space, between, you know, a religious space between a Jewish space, between a non-Jewish space, it sort of walks all of these boundaries, um, which is very interesting to me. But this idea of it being imperfect, like purposefully built in, tell us about that. Okay, well, I'll start with a, a small example that I was actually involved in, so I can I can speak from personal experience. But what I hope it will illustrate is a sort of larger idea, and then and then hopefully I'll be able to point towards those larger ideas in in um, in other institutions. But as you mentioned in your very kind introduction, um, the the first major exhibition I ever worked on was was culture and continuity at the Sydney Jewish Museum, and. Um, when we were looking at what objects we wanted to display and how we were going to display them, there was one aspect of the exhibition which was a sort of long-term timeline of Jewish history. And, of course, we we were going to include the Holocaust in that, but we couldn't simply repeat what 
happened, you know, in the in the Holocaust displays, which are in the levels above. So we spoke for sort of long and hard about how we're going to do this, and we we went. To, to the objects, in a sense, to find our answer. And there was one particular object that is a pretty extraordinary um, object, and it's um, it's it's we refer to it as the Brojtek Torah. You you probably know it quite well, and it's it's sitting in the ground floor right now. And this is a Torah that was um, rescued um, during the during the Holocaust from a town called Brojtek in the Subcarpathian Mountains, and um, Basically, this town was uh, subject to an action during the invasion of the Soviet Union and the synagogue was burnt and there were very, very few, like a handful of survivors from, from this town. What's remarkable is that a non-Jewish resident of the town, when that person saw that the synagogue was going was indeed burning, went in and saved this Torah. And kept it throughout the war, and then made it their business to find a Jewish survivor after the war and give them um, give them this Torah to you know, in a sense, to, to have saved something from that town's Jewish life. And Adam Zush was was the survivor that this Torah was given to. Now, this Torah was a, was burnt; it was torn. It couldn't be used in a ritualized setting. It couldn't be used in a synagogue. But he didn't want to simply, you know, bury it, put it in a Geniza the way that one, you know, in a sense uh, what one does with damaged sacred text uh, in the Jewish tradition. So he decided to keep it. And Adam migrated to Australia in 1956 when a lot of Hungarian Jewry did and, um, and he kept it. And then as he got older, he started thinking, well, what am I going to do with, <laughs> with this Torah? And in the accession records it says, he wished for this object to find a home among the Jews, right? Now, it's sort of quite an enigmatic phrase. It's quite hard to know what, what he meant by that, but, but he donated it to the museum with that intent. So when we were thinking about this Torah, we thought, well, you know, how could we use it in a display? And when you think about it, a Torah like that has so many stories. It could be a story of the Aktion, right, of the invasion of the Soviet Union. It could be a story um, about that town. Right, and pre-war Jewish life. It could tell the story in some ways of Adam's migration, help tell the story of his migration to Australia. But when we saw it, we it was almost immediate actually. We thought, no, this is the object that we're going to use as emblematic in that section of the ground floor display, the long-term Jewish um, timeline of the rupture of the Holocaust, right? So it became a sort of emblematic, symbolic kind of object and we were happy you know we were sort of happy with that but then we thought further and here you know uh, in a sense I'm, I'm giving fodder for my own argument but I hope it illustrates the point that I'm about to say uh, about to try and make which is we also wanted that object to say something beyond the historical so to speak beyond even the symbolic historical level that it, that it was now embedded into the timeline at that point in in the display we wanted it to ask a question which was, is the Jewish world somehow different? Is Jewish thought different? Um, is the relationship, the covenantal relationship that the Jews for centuries have believed themselves to be in with God, is this somehow different in the post-war 
period? Has the Holocaust ruptured something forever? Now, you could say this is a theological question, but it's also just a human question, right, on a, on a certain level. So we framed this object with the following quotation, and this comes from a, a book by a Melbourne author and academic, Mark Baker. He wrote um, quite a few years ago now called The 50th Gate, and in that book he explored his parents' stories. And it wasn't uh, what was so intriguing about his book was that he not only wanted to chronicle what they remembered, but he also in a sense wanted to question and chronicle what they didn't remember or what they'd remembered wrongly right, um, and what, what their memories meant to them. So this is an excerpt from that book, and the first half of this excerpt he actually takes from a second-century midrash, right, so a midrash that's written at the time at which uh, the, the, uh, there is a persecution of um, those Judeans who had stayed in the land of Israel and, and, and you were publicly, if you publicly ch- tried to teach Torah, you could be put to death by the Roman administration. So the first part um, is a description of a rabbi who had done just that and his execution by the Romans. So I'll, I'll, I'll read that part out. Our sages remember Rabbi Hanina ben Teradian was studying the Torah and holding a scroll of the law to his chest. Our enemies took hold of him, wrapped him in the scroll, placed bundles of branches around him and set them on fire. His disciples called out, Rabbi, what do you see? He answered them, the parchment is burning, but the letters are soaring high above me. So in other words, what is Ben Teradian saying? He's saying, don't read history like a Roman, right, to his students. He's saying, you see the end of history here, but what I'm telling you is there's a meta history. There's There's another um, story that we are a part of and that is going to survive past this and it's going to do so through the holy text and through our ability to to allow that text to live beyond, in a sense, these physical earthly circumstances, right? And what, what Rabbi Ben, um, ben Teradion is actually saying there is a classical Jewish theodicy, right? That theodicy is you see evil in the world but I'm telling you that ultimately it is for the good, right, and that it will, the covenant will continue. We will still stay in connection with our God throughout this. Then Mark adds the following at the end, and this is his writing. My parents remember the fire, the parchment burning, the bodies buried, letters soaring high, turned to ash and dust. And I think my interpretation, right, and why I wanted to use this, obviously, for the burnt Torah that we had in the in the in the display, is our question is: Well, is it now the same? Right? Can we simply say, well, it's not simple, but can we revert to those classical theodicies and say we don't understand, but ultimately this must be something that 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 will turn toward the good? Right now, not only can we not say that, but for modern jury, that is almost an impossibility. It's not, by the way, for traditional jury. Right? The I'm not, you will find in ultra orthodox uh, or you know very traditional thought the same theodicies that that applied to uh, traumatic events prior to the Holocaust will also apply to the Holocaust. But I'm talking about the majority of Jews that emerge after the Second World War for whom these classical theodicies are unpalatable, right? One point, 
what is it, 1.1 million Jewish children. How can we say this is ultimately toward the good? And that's what I think Mark's question is, right, is are we still able to say that uh, as Jews, as humans in in a post-Holocaust universe? So to frame that object, right, within that kind of idea, to me is to bring in questions into the museum space that are not... um, not simply historical questions. They are what I would call meta-historical questions. They're questions of meaning, right? They're questions of what does this history mean to us today? How do we understand it? What does it mean for our lives? And if you think about the majority of Holocaust museums today, these are the questions they ask. And, And I think we've become sort of so used to it that we don't see that this is actually quite a radical reworking of, um, you know, of, of, in a sense, the purpose of history, right? Like why we why we tell history in these museums? We don't simply tell history to have a historical record. I mean, of course they do, and and the major Holocaust museums in the world today, Washington, Yad Vashem, they're extraordinary institutes of historical research as well. But they also, and you know, if you look at one of the things I was very privileged to look at as part of my research were the founding documents of the Washington Museum and the council that was put together um, of really, it was just, you know, it reads like lumin- the luminaries of, of Jewish law right, in, in the 19, uh, late 1970s. So the, count, the, the council that was put together or the commission um, to report to Jimmy Carter on whether such an institution should be built. And you look at their reasonings for why this place should be built the minority is is to record the history. The majority are things like, you know, to transform the living by transmitting the legacy of the dead, right, um, to, you know, to honour and commemorate the dead, uh, to show the world that we should live in a different way, I'm paraphrasing now, but, but transformative aspirations, right, were what were built into the desire to build these places. So, what I'm, what I guess I'm trying to say is when I, when I talk about in, you know, in my, in my own work, in my own book, I talk about these places as built theodicies. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't actually mean they are theistic, right? They're not, um, they're not trying to uh, bring people into a particular faith, but they are asking questions. They, in, in almost secularized versions, although of course they're peppered throughout with them allusions to the Bible, and you know, you look at all these places have these kinds of allusions, um, and they transform traditional Jewish symbols, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in essence, they're asking the same questions, which is, what is the meaning of this event? How do we continue living in light of this event? Is it possible for the Jews to still consider themselves a covenantal people in light of this event? These are all questions, I think, that are still embedded in these places. Um, And in many ways, these are the places where you can ask these questions because, to be honest, to ask these questions, I think, in a traditional, you know, synagogue setting is not... it can't be in many ways, right? I mean, and I'll give you one example of that and then I'll, then I'll stop because I think I've probably gone way, way over the topic that you actually asked me. But if you think about it, you know, one of the most radical responses in post-Holocaust theology was Richard Rubenstein, who uh, in, I think it was in the 1960s, responded to the a commentary survey uh, where they asked, you know, 50 great Jewish thinkers of the time to respond to the pressing questions in, in Jewish life. And one of them was, you know, what, what is the state of Jewish belief after the Holocaust? And he was the only one out of 50 thinkers, right, who said 
the, the, not that God was dead. He said, you know, we can't, we cannot know that. It wasn't a sort of God is dead kind of response, but it was, look, the covenant is broken. Like if you, if you really look at Auschwitz, if you, if you actually don't turn away from what happened at Auschwitz, you cannot say that the, that the Jewish covenant still exists in its traditional form. Now, Rubenstein, Never worked again as a congregational rabbi. Right? As as a result, in many ways, he spent his life as an academic. I, I think, in many ways, he wanted to remain an academic as well, but still. Um, and you know, in many ways, his uh, his challenge, I guess, or his, you know, was not taken up by other thinkers. You know, there were there are there are modifications on it. There's there, there are theories, but um, post Holocaust theologies like Rabbi Irving Greenberg's idea of voluntary covenant that the Jews must choose the covenant after the Holocaust. But to literally say the covenant is broken is not something that um, is easily reconciled with with Jewish thought. But the experience of post Holocaust Jewry is certainly one in which those questions, in a sense, must be addressed. Right? There must be a way to to address and and perhaps to continue in Jewish life, but in a universe where those traditional paradigms are just not satisfactory anymore. The interesting thing about this idea of you know asking the questions in a museum space is, I don't know if you would agree with me, but I feel like in Holocaust memorial museums. One of the most sacred things that happens around this idea of asking the question, even if they are an apparaya, even if they are fundamentally unanswerable, is there's this sacrality around the concept of education, around educating Jews and non-Jews alike about these questions and asking these questions and hopefully getting some answers to create a better world. I mean, you look at, at Yad Vashem at USHMM at the Sydney Jewish Museum, the numbers of students that come through those museums is off the charts. And so, and I mean, I think both you and I would say if you ask survivors in those spaces why they come, why they volunteer, why they share their story. They are so focused on that sacred act of education and of getting people to face these questions for a better world. I was just wondering if we could finish off by you talking about the concept of of education in these spaces and whether you agree that it's a sacred act. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely do for a couple of for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that again in all the survivors that I spoke to, um, that was such a strong, as you said, such a strong, strong feeling that I do this because I, because in coming here and telling this story and commemorating this event, I am hopefully educating and making some kind of change for the future. Right? So, so I think there's just in that way, that's a sort of self-evident, you know, um, reason as to why I would absolutely agree with your observation the other one is a bit more interpretive I'll, I'll put it I will I will say mm. it's interpretive of me to say this but I do think and and I don't want to be chauvinistic about this this exists in other traditions as well but for the Jewish tradition the act of study is sacred it's holy right to to study to transmit knowledge uh, traditionally through Torah study but of course through the oral Torah as well is a sacred act Right? So 
this is something I think that in many ways is it's a natural thing for for institutions that are going to be so intimately involved with Jewish tradition and Jewish communities that this is again a sort of secularized version of this right it's it's a way that we can um, deploy the tradition in through through ostensibly a secular framework but it still fulfills uh, very much a traditional function so yes I I would say that is that is absolutely the case, and um, and I think what's really interesting, of course, and this happened this happened with ANZAC, and it's happened with other um, historical events as well, is that as we grow further away, so the interest grows. You know, like when I first started the museum, one of the greatest fears of the survivors was that you know who will remember this, and when we're gone, who would, and as that survivor. Um, community has aged, there has been more interest, right? <laughs> Rather than less, as you say, you know, the Sydney Jewish Museum can 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 barely fit everyone in uh, who who would like to come, you know, and who would like to learn. And it's and and that's that's one of the challenges of Holocaust education at the moment. How do we do it well, and how do we do it for the amount of people that that want to know? Which which I have to say, I think is you know, it's a it's a terrific development and um, and a credit to those places that they have been able to generate that kind of interest. And you only have to look around at the news at the moment at the amount of Holocaust survivors that have been interviewed about coronavirus. I mean, the idea that they, you know, that we have to learn their knowledge and their wisdom is something that is, you know, clearly applied to everything if we actually have a look at the news. Um, now, Avril, I just want to thank you for being with us today. I want to give another shout out to your most recent book, Holocaust Memory and Racism in the Post-War World from Wayne State University Press. But yeah, thank you again, Avril, for joining. Pleasure. Thank you, Bree. I'm really thankful that my co-editor, Bree Head Fallon, who interviewed today's guest, Dr. Avril Alba, had the opportunity to, as an experienced museum educator herself, really speak about some of the roles that museums play in curating history, but also the active roles that they play in shaping our understanding of history and the way in which the public interacts with history. I'm thinking particularly about some of the questions, and uh, Dr. Alba calls them maybe even meta-historical questions, questions that are about the meaning uh, of history for us today in each era. Bree and I are speaking in a very tense moment right now in the United States, uh, but for a Holocaust Museum, that memory of traumatic pasts is very much alive today, and I'd love to hear a little bit more from from you, Bree about that idea of uh, the purpose of memory and, and meaning-making in museums? Well, if I speak for our own museum, I think history is definitely something that is very much alive. It's very much something that has a voice. And when we hear from Holocaust survivors, it's that very conscious learning from the past and ensuring that we're not just recording history, that we are learning from it, that we are asking greater questions from it. I mean, Avril Elba talked about the concept of, of the meta-narrative and the, even the quest questions of theodicy about you know the amount of children that were lost in the Holocaust and how do we make sense of that? And 
museums have such an important cultural role to play because in recording our past and recording our memories, they're really sort of showing us and holding a mirror up to us in terms of where we've been and and where we want to go. And in the present moment, you know, we're recording this on, you know, in early June and in the present moment with what is going on in the US, I can't help but thinking of the new the new lynching museum. Um, I believe it's in Montgomery. And the fact that museum has these large plinths which are from different areas around um, the South that have names of individuals that were lynched and each town is supposed to come and collect that plinth. And only a handful of them have been collected and, and that is a really great example of how that museum is trying to make that connection between the past and the present and really highlight the fact that there is a lot of work to do. Um, there are a lot of questions that are still unanswered and a lot of questions that haven't actually been asked. And in the present moment, I can't help but think about the museum's role in really, as I said, holding up that mirror to us and helping us think about what hasn't been changed and and what needs to be changed going forward. And, you know, we're here on the Religious Studies Project and religion is a fundamental part of that. Religion as an institution, religion as an idea is something that is present throughout human society and we need to think about what role that has had in the past, what role that has in the present and what role religion is going to have in the future as we try and answer those questions and try and keep asking questions about what's what's gone on in the past. That was a very long uh, explanation for um, the question you asked me, Dave, and I think we're going to keep talking about these questions in the next episode that we'll have coming up next week. We are. And and for those of you that would like to learn more about the museum, the museum's name is the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, also known as the Legacy Museum, and it traces um, the lives and the experiences uh, of black people who were enslaved in Montgomery, Alabama, and other places uh, from enslavement to mass incarceration. It is an award-winning museum uh, that has been very, very well-received and is uh, something that's definitely on my list uh, to do to explore uh, the American history of racial injustice and its legacy to this day, uh, even this past week and these past years, uh, as we, as a nation, deal with the um, the death of George Floyd. Um, and next time, we hope that in discourse, um, that there's an opportunity to talk about some of the critical theoretical approaches that, that uh, scholars that we're familiar with can bring to bear at the intersection of this time with coronavirus and um, uh, protests about um, police actions in the U.S. Um, and so until then, I think we're, we're really fortunate to have an opportunity to share with you some of these perspectives and to look forward to future conversations about uh, critical theory on religion and how all of our scholarly work can really be brought to, um, to enhance and improve the lives of all the people that um, that could be listening and that are out there that we would love to be able to reach. Wouldn't you agree, Brie? Yes, 100%. But we will bring together, you know, that critical side of religious studies and how our work can make a difference um, in that next episode. So until then, all that's left to say is thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. 
The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.